have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Um, so I said I was starting a series in Ephesians, and uh, so obviously that's why we're going to be in the book of Acts this morning, is because we're starting uh, a series in the book of Ephesians. Um, one thing that we didn't, we knew having kids, when, when my wife got pregnant with our first daughter, we knew having kids um, would have its challenges. And one thing, though, we didn't know how difficult it would be, would be to figure out what in the world are we going to name this kid. And so when my wife was pregnant, we, this is like, you know, in the old days, like eight years ago, when you had to wait till like 20 weeks to get an ultrasound to find out what the baby was going to be. And so we had all this time and we're writing down names and she's thinking all these names and I'm thinking of names and we're, you know, jotting first name and last name and various combinations of first names and, well, last name, the last name was said, the middle name. Um, yeah, the last name, we, we, we'd already got that figured. That was, that was the easy part. And so we'd got, we'd got it narrowed down to one boy's name. So we were, we were thinking, okay, if it's a boy, we're set. And two girl names. And so, of course, we go in the ultrasound. You know, they, they do the belly jelly and the little, like, you know, they do the scan. And we see and they tell us. And my wife has, uh, was in a crisis pregnancy ministry uh, before um, we moved to Florida. And so she's been in lots of ultrasounds. And so she knew, but she didn't tell me until they, you know, the doctor said, I think we have a baby girl. And so, oh, we're so excited. That's great. The only problem was we don't know what to call her because we're, we, don't, we have two names. So we get in the hallway of the doctor's office, and I ask her, I say, babe, um, what's it going to be? And we had, we had two names, a first name and a middle name. And I said, I think, I just feel like Adeline Hope, that's, that's what her name is supposed to be. And Laura looked at me, she's like, you know, I think you're right. And so we named our daughter Adeline Hope, and she's, you know, here in the kids' ministry. And, uh, you know, we love her name. It's a beautiful name. Uh, it's a very meaningful name for us. My wife's middle name is Lynn, L-Y-N, with one N. She might, likes people to know that. And so we were adding a Lynn. And then Hope, uh, because before she was born, we'd actually had two miscarriages. And we had a lot of, of you know, that was a really difficult process for us. And, and so Hope was just a sign of what God had done uh, in us and for us with her name. We went through a similar, uh, a similar situation, a similar process when it came to naming this new church. So to give you a little backstory, and some of you know this, some of you don't, um, church planting, starting a new church, had been on my heart for 15 years at least. And it's something God had stirred in my heart um, when I was in college. And then when we were in seminary, uh, I, I started feeling like maybe this is something we want to do. And Laura and I actually thought that's what we were going to do after I finished seminary. We were going to plant a new church. And, and then that didn't end up happening. God called us into an established church for almost nine years. And I was super involved with church planting networks and supporting church planting. And it was something I really believed in, but something I thought, praise God, that I'm never going to actually have to do. Well, last uh, uh, summer... We'd been in a process of about a year and a half of, of sort of revisiting the idea of planting a new church. And, and it's actually, my, Laura kept sort of needling me. She kept saying, you know, why could we, you know, I think we could do this. I think we could do this. I don't know, babe, I'm not sure. I think we have to be really, really sure if that's what we're going to do. And, and so she's been, you know, for a year and a half, we've been praying, we've been discerning. 
And she's like poking at me, you know, like, I think we could do this. I think we could do this. I don't know, babe. I'm not sure. So I took a day in August of last year, and I spent a day just fasting and praying and planning. And long story short is at the end of that day, I'd committed to Jesus that we would plant a church. And then I got to go, and I told Laura that night, I took her to coffee and said, hey, you know how you've been kind of, get, you know, saying you think we could do this? Well, I, I really actually, I've decided I agree with you. And then she looked at me and said, well, I didn't think that you would actually go through with it. And so we began the process of, you know, trying to raise money and to try to connect with people who might be interested in joining the church and to start to put things in place at the church where I was currently serving as a pastor. And in the midst of that, one of the first things we had to do is we had to think of a name for the church. You tell people we're starting a church. Well, what's it, you know, first thing to say, well, what's, what's it called? And so we started the same thing. We had a notebook, and we're writing all these names down. And I had a name I really liked, and Laura's like, no, we can't name it that. And um, we're coming up with all these names. We're texting back and forth. We're calling. You know, it's going on for almost, probably almost a week. We're just trying to think of names. She calls me one day, and she says, babe, I have the perfect name for the church. I said, oh, awesome. I'm so excited. And she tells me, listen, she goes, cross united church and i didn't say this i just was kind of quiet but inside my head i thought that's the stupidest worst name for a church that i've ever thought i was like why i don't i don't want a church name that sounds like a soccer team you know like but as it kind of sat with me i realized the name sort of grew on me and, and within a day or two i realized that the way god called us to plant the church was through a passage in romans 10 where it says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how will they call on him they have not believed? And how will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And we, we just felt like the name captured the vision God had given us for bringing people to him and bringing people together, bringing people to God and bringing people together. And we, I just really felt, and I still feel, that we have an opportunity as a church and we have an opportunity as the church to be a presence of unity, to be a community, a, a, a people who are united around something bigger than what the world finds its unity in. In this, in this moment, we live in such a fractured society. We live in, in a society that is fractured and fragmented and divided in every way you could imagine. We're divided racially between black and white and brown. And, you know, maybe there's some like inner, you know, people, you know, there's maybe not overt animosity, but there's definitely division. You know, some people say, well, black lives matter. And other people say, no, 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 all lives matter. And other people are like, no, 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 blue lives matter. And we it's all of this division and fracturing. We're divided economically, and people who have more money live in one neighborhood, and people who have less money live in another neighborhood. Some people are barely making their light bill. We, we had a, an opportunity yesterday as some, some folks from Cross United to partner with Trinity, who uh, this, is, this is their campus, and we are so glad to be meeting here. And we got to help them to do some painting uh, in their office and to help them with that project and a, a, a lady came into the, 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 the office and was in just, just profound need and we were able to minister to her in just a small way to let her know that God had not forgotten her and that, that God loves her. 
Some people are in just such profound financial need. Other people in, in, within walking distance are probably paying more in taxes than many in the community are making annually. And there's just a, there's this big divide economically. There's a big divide generationally. We tend to hang with people who are like us. They have similar life stage. They have young kids or they have no kids or they're single or they're married without, you know, kids or they're widowed or divorced or whatever it may be. They're older and they're empty nesters. We tend to hang out with people who are in the same life stage as us. We're divided politically. I mean the 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 Nomination and debate over the newest Supreme Court justice show that. I mean, have you ever seen such vitriol in the po- in, in the political s- sector? That it's just we are so torn apart in so many profound ways in this culture. But even worse, even worse than those sorts of divisions, we have a fundamental fracturing, not just from one another, but we have there is there is a division, not just on earth, but there is a division between earth and heaven. We're separated from God. Statistically, 97% of people in this community do not have a real vibrant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have a longing for him in this society. People are missing something. They can't quite put their finger on it. James K.A. Smith is a Christian philosopher. He quotes a, an atheist author named Julian Barnes who said, I don't believe in God but I miss him. We've, we've run away from God as a culture, and we've run away from God individually. The Bible, Bible says that we've all gone our own way and tried to live life our own way, and the Bible calls that sin. We run away from God, and God hates our sin because it's not the way he designed us to live, and sin leads to death, and, and we can't fix it ourselves. And so God had to send his son Jesus to be crucified, buried, and raised to life so that anyone who turns to him would be given new life. And we believe, as a church, we believe that any person, including you, including me, who would turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus will be given new life. And that that rupture between heaven and earth, at least in their life, would be healed. We believe we can be reunited to God and we believe we can be reunited with one another. As a church, we have this opportunity to be united in a divided culture. And that's why, that's why I want to study the book of Ephesians because it is a book about being united around the cross of Jesus Christ. Our vision statement as a church, our purpose statement as a church, why do we exist? We exist so that people can find life like God intended. And how, how do we do that? We, we want to bring people to God and bring people together through the cross of Jesus Christ. And the book of Ephesians, that's what it's all about. And, and book, it's probably my favorite book in the Bible. Um, if you put a gun to my head and said, you can only take one book of the Bible with you, um, you know, de- the, the whole de- you're on a desert island, which book of the Bible do you want? I would probably pick Ephesians. I just, it, it is like at the end of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney World, you're, you know, the, 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 they updated it and there's Jack Sparrow in this room just filled with more treasure than you could ever count or imagine. That's how Ephesians feels to me. It's just, I, I've, I've studied it, I've preached through it, I've done papers on it, I've memorized it, I've read it in Greek, and I still feel like I'm barely scratching the surface of Ephesians. And I hope that you will be excited to join me 
in studying it together. It's like Scrooge McDuck jumping off of the diving board into the, the, the coins of his money bin. Some of you who grew up in the 80s and 90s know what I'm talking about with that one. So what we're going to do is we're going to study for the next couple of months, we're going to study the first few chapters of Ephesians. And then we're going to take a break and we're going to have a special Christmas series and then a special New Year's series. And then in the spring, we're going to pick up and we're going to finish the book of Ephesians because it is such a profoundly important book for us setting the DNA of our culture. It's going to help us to live up to the name that God has given our church. You know, we picked a name for our daughter. We picked the name for the church. But in the end of the day, God is sovereign and he picked those names. And he is sovereign over the meaning and the vision that those names convey. So what I want to do this morning, and now some of you are wondering that like, okay, you've been talking for 12 minutes and you said you were going to be talking about Ephesians and then you told us Acts and we still haven't gotten into the scripture at all. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the origin story. We're going to look at the backstory of Ephesians and that's where we get to Acts chapter 19. Uh, I've been recently kind of uh, getting into presidential biographies, and I'll listen to them on Audible, on audiobook. And so I did a, I did like, I binged like five Teddy Roosevelt biographies on Audible, and then I did two Lincoln biographies, and I'm currently just starting a, a one on Ulysses S. Grant. Well, in Lincoln, one of the big things in in the story of Abraham Lincoln was the Gettysburg Address, this profound two-minute speech that changed the course of a nation, and still is still like. If anyone knows anything about American history, they probably know like Declaration of Independence and Gettysburg Address. And scholars debate like where did Lincoln write it? For a while there was this myth that he wrote it on the back of a back of an envelope on the way to the speech and then that's been proven okay, that's not actually what happened and there's all of this intrigue about how was this important speech written? Well, in the case of the book of Ephesians, we don't need to wonder because we know the backstory behind Paul's interaction with this group of people in Ephesus. And what I think we're going to see in Acts chapter 19 is Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus provides an example of what our ministry as Cross United should be like in our community. That Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus gives an example of what our ministry here in South Florida, in Lighthouse Point, Deerfield, Pompano, should look like. So let me tell you a little bit about the city of Ephesus. If you go to Acts chapter 19, verse 1, it says, While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. Um, let's just pause. I just realized, let's just pause and just ask God's help as we really get into the text of Scripture this morning. Father, I just ask that you would speak through me, that you would edit me, that your Holy Spirit would have freedom that you would apply the word to each person based on what they need. And uh, you know that you've guided me in my preparation, but you'll, I also know that you may have something that I'm supposed to say that I haven't written down, and I pray that you would help me to say it. And maybe there's some things I've written down that I don't need to say, that you would uh, just edit me as needed, and that you would apply the word of God to the people of God, that your word, your people, and just, uh, and just speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, uh, the, the, the book of Ephesians was actually a letter Paul wrote to a church that he had been a part of planting in the city of Ephesus. We see here in Acts 19 verse 1, uh, his second trip to Ephesus. Ephesus was a, 
um, in modern-day Turkey, on the far western edge, right across the Aegean Sea from Greece. Um, and in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, it was a really important city. Some say it was the second or third most populous city and second or third most important city in the Roman Empire after Rome itself. It was definitely like in the top three. So in the U.S., you have, you know, you have New York, you have Chicago, San Francisco, Miami. You've got these keystone culture-making cities. Well, Ephesus was one of those in the, in the vast Roman Empire. What it was famous for was it had a massive temple to the Greek god Artemis. Um, and, and it had this image, this statue of Artemis in the temple that misheld actually fell from heaven. And, and we don't believe that's what happened. We believe that, you know, someone carved it and then it became a myth over time. But that's what people there believed. And they believed that as they worshipped Artemis, they would be prosperous. And so Ephesus was an extremely prosperous city. And they believed that was tied in part because they worshipped this goddess, Artemis. And we're going to see that that leads to some issues for Paul and his ministry there. Um, it also was, long before Miami, the original magic city. So it was a place known for magical practice, sorcery, witchcraft, and all sorts of things. And Paul, Paul goes, excuse me, goes to Ephesus. So Paul was this guy, and, and some of you know who he is. He was a Jewish uh, zealot who was persecuting the followers of Christ in he gets literally knocked down on the ground, blinded, and Jesus comes to him and saves him and turns him from a terrorist into a missionary. And Paul spends most of his life walking throughout the Roman Empire telling people about Jesus. The famous Roman roads, he walked thousands of miles and went to every city he could and told people about Jesus and helped people to find life in Jesus and then planted churches with these new uh, believers in Jesus in those cities. And he took these mission trips. He took three mission trips, sometimes called missionary journeys. And th these stories are found in Acts 13 through 20. So this is in Ephesus, the end of his third missionary journey. And he stops over in Ephesus um, in, on his way back from his second missionary journey, stays for a little bit. He can't stay. And then he comes back. Uh, and he comes back in Acts 19, verse 1, and he stays there for three years. It is by far the longest Paul stayed anywhere in the course of his missionary life. Uh, it was a city full of people that he loved and a city where he had a profound impact and a very, very vibrant and fruitful ministry. And I think that, like I said, that, that the, the example of his ministry in Ephesus is going to help us to shape our ministry as a church that's only six weeks old. You know, a baby who's six weeks old, they haven't even had her shots yet, you know? And, and our, our pediatrician said, don't take the baby out till she's had her shots. And my, my wife was like, she was, she was a Pharisee about that. Like, our daughter went to the doctor, she went outside, and she was in our, that was it. Because she was so new, we wanted to make sure she had a healthy and good start. Well, we're so new as a church, we want to set a healthy DNA. So here are eight things that Paul's ministry shows us, eight ways that Paul's ministry can shape us as a church. Number one, it was a ministry. It was a ministry. His time in Ephesus was, embodied what it mean, meant to serve. 
Um, I told you Acts 19, but I faked you out because now I want you to go to Acts 20. And I want you to go to verse 35. It's going to be on the screen. Acts 20, verse 35. In every way I've shown you, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders after he's left after three years, and now he's returned, and this is, his, this is his resignation sermon. This is his farewell sermon. He says, in every way I've shown you, it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's time in Ephesus was a time of ministry where he served the people. You'll see people on Sunday mornings wearing shirts that say, here to serve. That's one of our slogans. That's one of our mantras. That's one of the things that we want to embody as a church. We are here to serve. We're, we're not here just to, to have a little event where people can come and they, they can you know attend. That is awesome and, and critical and important. That is the life of the church. But we want to move from that into serving the community. We want the community to be glad that we're here glad that we're here. And we want to do this because this is what Jesus did. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, he came not to be served, but to serve. And that service that he gave was the service of crucifixion, of dying for the sins of the world, for dying for the sins of people who hated him. And he served them by dying. So here's my question is, how, how can we cultivate this spirit in the heart of Cross United Church, I think it's already starting to really manifest in a really beautiful way. Um, last week, we weren't here. Laura and I weren't here. Uh, Eric wasn't here. So we had uh, like all of like the leaders of the, the ministry. So the preaching ministry, the music ministry, and the kids ministry. Every leader was gone, and the service, you guys rocked it out. You're here to serve. Um, we showed that yesterday by being with Trinity and helping, do, just doing some painting. We served the city on Easter. and We just need to continue to look for those ways, both individually and corporately, how we can serve and show that our slogan is more than talk. And we're doing that, and let's continue to do that like Paul did. It was a true ministry. Number two, it was a missionary ministry. Uh, you've already seen verse, chapter 19, verse 1, but let's read it again. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples there. So, so you have to understand that Paul, like I said, is he has been sent from another church called Antioch, hundreds of miles away from here, and they have sent him across the Roman Empire, across the known world, so that he can share the gospel. Uh, he's a missionary. Mission is a word that we usually think of someone who goes far away to places where people don't speak English and they minister to people who wear like strange clothing and live in huts. That's usually what we think of when we think of a missionary. Well, missionary just means one. It comes from a Latin word that means one who is sent. So anyone who has been sent is a missionary. Anyone who's been sent by Jesus is a Christian missionary. So now the question is, who is Jesus sent? Well, John 20, 21 tells us that he has sent his church. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Matthew 28, great commission, go and make disciples. 
Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Jesus has sent us into the world to share his love with the world. So the question isn't whether we're missionaries or not. The question is whether we're good missionaries or not. Are we faithful missionaries or not? Are you living your life with a missionary intent? You're not in your neighborhood. You're not on your street. You're not in your job. You're not in your family. You're not even in this church by accident. God has brought you and sent you for a purpose. And the way we say it here is to bring people to God and bring people together through the cross of Jesus Christ. One, one simple way, just one very simple way, not the only way, not the most important way, but a very simple way to do that is to just invite friends to church. Is just to say, hey, we got this new church and, and I'd love for you to attend sometime. And this, we, we have those invite cards and just be faithful to invite. When you're you know, in line and you're checking out at the drive-thru at McDonald's, um, because, you know, it's been two years since you watched Super Size Me, so you, the, the, the guilt is gone, and you, you know, don't think about the fact that the fries never, never disintegrated in like 46 years, right? So you go to McDonald's, and you're, you're buying your Happy Meal for your kids, and give them, hey, you know what? We're part of this new church. You, when, you, when you're talking to friends, you just, that, that is a very, very simple way to live out your missionary calling. Paul was a missionary. Number three, it was a teaching ministry. Look at the rest of the beginning of chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. Uh, we'll start in verse 2. And he, and he saw these disciples and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized, he asked them? Into John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who is to come after him. That is in Jesus. Now we're going to go to chapter or verses eight through uh, eight through ten. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both the Jews, Jews and Greeks, uh, heard the word of the Lord. Um, and then there's another verse in verse 20. It says, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So, so what Paul does, he finds this group of disciples. There's 12 men, 12 of them. And he asks them, and they have not been, they, they've somehow heard a message and they're called disciples, followers of Jesus, but, but somehow they're, they have no idea about some of the most basic truths of the Christian faith. So we are going to be like Paul, we are going to be unapologetic about just teaching the Bible and teaching Christian truth. He goes and he rents out. He goes to the synagogue and he's there for three months and they're cool with him being there. Finally, they get upset and he can't meet there anymore. So he rents out a lecture hall. It's a lot like what we're doing. We're renting out a space in partnership with Trinity Church so that we can hear and be taught in the word of God. And so Paul rents out this lecture hall for two years. Anyone who wants to come every day, he's just teaching the truth of the scripture. The, 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 the word Christian is actually really very rarely used in the Bible. Um, it's used uh, a few times, but much more often the word for someone who follows Jesus is this word we saw in verse 1, a disciple. The word disciple um, has, you know, 
has now a lot of connotations, but what it literally means is just a student or a learner or an apprentice. It's someone who puts themselves in a posture of being instructed. And, and what we see, to be a Christian means we learn from Jesus. We are teachable. And then we multiply that teaching in the lives of God, the, the, in the lives of the people God has put us in connection with. And we have all been called to be learners of the Scripture and teachers of the Scripture. So he takes these disciples and <clears throat> part of what God has called us to do is, is maybe there's folks who know about Jesus, but they've never been truly taught in the, in the truth of the Bible. And we're going to teach the Bible, whether it's kids Sunday school in Kids City or whether it's Sunday morning sermons or whether it's ladies Bible study on Thursday night, which by the way, I think you can still join if you want to. They had the first kickoff on Thursday. I heard it was great. Men's Bible study on Thursday mornings. Whatever the opportunity is in this church to learn the Bible, to learn, it's always going to be centered on learning the scripture and then multiplying that into the lives of others. We should all be apprentices of Jesus. We should all be disciples and learners of Jesus. So my question is, who are you learning from? And then who are you teaching? Who are you investing in? A teaching ministry. Fourth, it was a spiritually powerful ministry. Look at uh, verses 6 and 11. When Paul laid his hands on them, these men who'd never heard of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in other tongues and to prophesy. God was performing extraordinary miracles, verse 11, by Paul's hands. Ephesians 5.18, we're going to see when we get there in the text, says, be filled with the Spirit. This is not optional. This is not just some tribes of Christianity. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God who has been gifted to us by the Father and the Son to empower us to know and love, trust, and follow Jesus. And without the Spirit, we can do nothing. Paul says, he came to the Corinthian church and he says, I knew two things. I knew Jesus was crucified and I had the power of the Spirit and that's all I needed. I didn't need pipe and drape. I didn't need lighting. I didn't need a projector. Didn't need a sound system. Didn't need Facebook ads. I didn't need a uh, really sweet foldable Cross United branded wall thingy. I didn't, need, I didn't need any of that. I needed Jesus in the cross and I needed the Spirit. And so I just pray that God would continue to fill this church with his spirit. And the church will never influence the world. This church or a church, like one church or the church, until the spirit's power is made manifest and powerful through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't have all this worked out of how this looks, but I just know that I am increasingly discontent with the lack of the evidence of spiritual power in my own life. And I think if you are content with the level of spiritual power in your life, that maybe you should get more acquainted with what the Spirit did in the early days of the church. It was a spiritually powerful ministry. Number five, it was a Jesus-exalting ministry. Verse 17, chapter 19, verse 17. So Paul is doing these extraordinary miracles, in, starting in verse 11. It says that when he worked, he was a tent maker, and he would tie like stuff around his head to like soak up his sweat. So we have some guys here, they bring extra shirts on Sunday because they literally sweat through their shirt. 
because they're working their tails off, here to serve. Praise God for that. This, what happened was Paul would take and peel off his sweaty tent-making shirt, and then he'd get changed for service at the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and people would touch his sweaty, nasty shirt and get healed. That's what's happening. There is so much power from God happening through the ministry of Paul in the name of Jesus that people are like, oh, that is incredible. And so then there's this group of Jewish um, um, exorcists, these, these kind of spiritual workers um, who, who were the, the son of a, of a man named Sceva who was said to be the high priest. And they said, hey, we, if we use the name of Jesus, we, it's like a magic, you know, remember, magic city. There was this magical superstition. If we use the name of Jesus and just call the name of Jesus, then we're going to have this power. Well, they call upon the name of Jesus for this demon-possessed man and say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul speaks of, um, come out. And the demon goes, well, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And he attacks them, strips their clothes off, and they run from the house naked because it's not a magical incantation. It's a relationship with a real person. And it says in verse 17, when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. I've shared this story before, but there was a a point earlier this spring where I was sitting out on our patio, and I was just thinking, we're in the midst of trying to get the the foundation laid for planting the the church, and... um, I just, I just became just, I, I, I don't know if I was listening to like what a beautiful name, the, the worship song, or if I was just reflecting, but I just was sort of overcome by the fact that people know Jesus, and it's not that people, it's not like we're in a place where people don't know the name of Jesus. The problem is they know Jesus in one of two ways. They know him as a cliche, like, oh, Jesus will help you, Jesus, you know, yeah, Jesus, yay, or they know him as a cuss word, but they don't know him as a real living person. They don't know Jesus. They don't know the real Jesus. And I was sitting there, I was just reflecting on this, and it just sort of overwhelmed me that the, the, the name of Jesus was not known in this community. And that, that's the heart why we're here, so that the name of Jesus would be exalted. So I have two questions for you. Do you have that heart to know Jesus, and do you have the heart to make him known? Do, do you weep for others to know him? Do you, do you, does it break your heart that they don't? Or maybe you yourself don't know him, and you're not quite sure what the, the fuss is all about. On Thursday at our men's Bible study, um, we were talking about the four friends who brought their paralytic friend, and they climb up on the roof, and they can't get in the house, so they dig through the roof, and they lower their friend down. And, and we're talking about, do we pursue Jesus like that? Are we that passionate to pursue him? Are we that desperate for him and what he offers to us? It was a Jesus-exalting ministry. Number six, it was a multicultural ministry. Look at verse 10. I know I'm kind of jumping around. Usually I like to be more sequential, but I've kind of gone in um, just the order I felt like would would be, uh, well, just the way the Lord led me, I guess. Um, This went on for two years, it's Paul's teaching, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. And we're going to see in the book of Ephesians that this cultural divide is a massive issue in the church of Ephesus. The, the, the division between Jews and Greeks makes the division today between black and white 
look like nothing. This was a division of cultural, religious, um, political, linguistic. It was just, it was as big of a divide as you could imagine because the Jews felt for, for centuries they have been told and believed, rightly so, that they are the chosen of God and the Gentiles are the unwashed, the goyim. And now they've been told, oh, Jesus actually brings us all together and we're all even, we're all equal under the foot of the cross. And it created massive cultural issues, religious tension. Um, I told you a little bit of my story. Part of how God called us to plant the church was this belief that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, whether you are black or you're white or you're brown, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're old or whether you're young, wherever you are, that Jesus in the cross is the great equalizer and the church should be full of everyone to bring people to God and bring people together through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why I think Ephesians is going to be such a beautiful book to study together. It's so easy to live life from our own perspective. Here's just a small example. So my, my daughter is in school with a lot of people from a lot of different cultures. And she was at a friend's birthday party yesterday. And the, the person whose birthday is, a, is of a different cultural background than us. And so in our culture, if it's the parties from 2.30 to 4.30, at 4.29, the party's over and it's time for everyone to leave, right? That's, that's not in the Bible, that's not good and righteous, but in my mind, that's the right way. So I'm texting Laura at 4.48, hey, how's it going? You almost done? Yeah, yeah, we're about to cut the cake, 5.20, 5.40. And I'm like, where are you? She's like, I can't just leave. They haven't cut the cake, they haven't sung happy birthday, we've been there like 14 hours. It's like, you know, it's just these cultural differences, and it's not, now, we interpret that as like better and worse, like you say time, you mean a time, and so, but another culture says, well, you care more about time than relationship, and both think they're better, and the reality is it's not better and worse, it's just different. Now, there are things that are better and worse culturally and, that, and, and, and morally, but many of these things that we see in black and white terms are very, very, they're just cultural preferences. And if we're going to be a church that brings people to God and brings people together, there's going to be some tension there sometimes. Because I don't know what it's like to be a black man in America. I just don't. Because I've never been a black man in America. I've been a white man in America. And so if I'm going to say that I understand the experience of someone of a different culture, a different ethnicity, a different background, without ever asking them their experience, then, then I'm not really being honest. But what the cross does is it brings us together and it it equalizes the ground because we are all in the same boat that our difference is not fundamentally cultural and horizontal with one another our our differences are vertical in the fact that we are alienated from god apart from christ and so i think the church in this fractured moment culturally politically racially in every way that i talked about earlier we have an opportunity to really show a type of unity, to be united, as the series title says, in a way that the world cannot quite wrap their minds around. It was a multicultural ministry, number six. Number seven, it was a subversive ministry. It was a subversive ministry. 
verses 18 and 19. Many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated the value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Modern day, that's like $5 million worth. Of, that's a lot of books. And it's all these secret, special books of magical spells. And they're burning them in this big bonfire because they don't need it anymore. Because Jesus and the Spirit have invaded their lives. Verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. Subversive means it, 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 it undermines and overturns. So the city of Ephesus was governed by two things in many ways. Magic and the worship of Artemis. Look what happens in verse 23. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. That's the, the way of Jesus, Christianity. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a number of people by saying that gods made by human hands are not gods. Verse 27, not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very one whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And there's a riot that breaks out. Why? Because the preaching of the gospel subverts the idols of the culture. The preaching of the gospel subverts the idols of the culture, whether it's magic or worshiping a Greek goddess in a great temple and all the economic you know, stuff that goes along with that. The gospel subverts idolatry. So what are the idols of our culture? Well, we could probably spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think three, just off the top of my head, I would say probably family, finances, and fun are toward the top of the list. We don't often think in these terms, but I think many people have overreacted to the, the fracturing of the family. Now, many families are fractured and torn apart, but many have responded to that by, by overly valuing their family and putting their kids an, on a pedestal of worship in their lives. I think that's very prevalent in our community. I also think the, the fracturing of the family is a very big problem, and then there's this overreaction as well. I think finances, people either having a lot and finding security in that, or not having a lot and thinking that's where their security will come from. I think fun, I think, I think a lot of people, they, they simply live to provide the most fun when they're not having to work as they possibly can, and they're, they're, they're looking for diversion from the fact that if they stop and think about it, they can't find any meaning for their life. And I think the gospel is going to do in South Florida and in Lighthouse Point and Deerfield Beach it, what it did in Ephesus. It's going to come in and it's going to subvert the idolatry of the culture. The question, I, I would qu just to bring it home, is what, what idol does the gospel need to subvert in your life? What idol have you been clinging to? How, how can you identify? An, see, we don't. our idols are different. Now, of course, they had the temple of Artemis, and we have, you know, the Hard Rock Stadium, right? So there's temples of worship still. 
They're a little different and maybe more culturally acceptable to Christians. But what, what, what is it that it makes you mad if it gets threatened? It makes you scared to think of losing it. It makes you happy to think of gaining it. What are the things in your life that you're finding that sort of, you're investing that sort of value in? To answer those questions, you might have found an idol in your life, and the gospel may need to subvert that idol. And it's not always easy, and it's not always comfortable, but that's what the gospel does. It subverts idolatry, just like it did in Ephesus. Finally, number eight, an entrusting ministry. An entrusting ministry, verse uh, chapter 20, verses 17, and then in verse 28. So Paul leaves Ephesus after three years, and he stops by, and he stops at this town a little, a little uh, ways away from Ephesus, and calls the Ephesian elders. Look at chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, that's where he was, that's where he, was he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. So what we see here is that Paul has empowered and entrusted the ministry to other faithful leaders who are carrying on the ministry while he is gone. And he says to them in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. That's where we get the Greek, the, the word for bishop, by the way. To shepherd, that's where we get the word for pastor, the church of God, which he purchased with his own Blood. So what Paul has done is he has gone in, he's preached the gospel, he's raised up pastors and leaders for the church, and then he has left. He's entrusted to them the ministry. I already mentioned that, that you know, this church is not about any one single leader. It's not about, uh, Gary and I were talking this morning, because um, we joke about, uh, Gary's like one of our most faithful, hardworking uh, servant leaders, and, and I, I emailed him this week. I said, hey, don't come in early for setup at 8 a.m. when you normally come in. Um, just come in like like 11 and just, you know, have a little bit more of a relaxing morning. And we were joking this morning that if we can set up without Gary, then we're, we're golden because he, he does he does so much. And and like we're, t- and he and I were talking this morning is, and like us being gone last week, this church does not depend on any single person except for Jesus. And part of my heart is to continue to pass off leadership and pass off authority and responsibility so that less and less depends on me because I think that's the model that Jesus has given to us. And to raise up pastors and elders and leaders continually. And maybe God's kind of stirring in your heart. 1 Timothy 3.1 says that's a noble desire that maybe God has put in your heart to serve in some leadership capacity. And this is a model of a healthy church and this is what Paul modeled in Ephesus. So how is God calling you to respond? How is God calling you to respond? We've talked a lot about a lot of things, and, but I, I think there's four ways that I want to just kind of circle back around to on your connection card. Paul's ministry in Ephesus was a missionary ministry. And so maybe, maybe for you, you're just like, you know what, I need to invite a friend. And, and if that's you, just check that off, and, and you can write their, just their first name, just as, as a way for us to pray for that person. Or maybe you've been disconnected from community, you've been disconnected from learning, maybe you sort of attend church sporadically, but you know you need to get more involved. Maybe you need to get connected to one of our Bible studies. Check that off. Maybe you need 
as we saw that Paul's ministry was indeed a ministry, maybe you need to step into serving. And you need to, to say, you know what, I can serve. I can, I can help once a month or I can help every couple weeks and do, do, some, do some lifting and do some moving around. Or I'm, I'm good with kids and, and I have a clear background check and I'm good, I'm good to go. Um, get, check that third one. I want to get connected to serving in a ministry. And the fourth one is if you have sensed that, that when you're quiet and when you pause, and you wonder, is there any meaning? Does this matter at all? And you try to fill that up with fun, family, finances, whatever it is. Because when you stop and pause and you listen, you're not quite sure that it matters. That's because, like I said in the beginning of the sermon, we live in a society that has divorced itself from its connection to heaven. There's, 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 there's been a, a disconnect from the reality of who God is. And he is inviting you into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about that, I want you to just check that fourth box. Say, I want to know more about becoming a Christian. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you just be with us? Um, however you're stirring in the hearts of those who are, are hearing your word, that you would just do that. It's your, I am confident that you are stirring stuff in people's hearts and minds that I could never have thought to, to mention. And that's because your spirit is at work. And so we just pray that our ministry as Cross United Church would embody what Paul's ministry was. It would be a ministry, a missionary ministry, that it would be um, an entrusting ministry, that it would be a Christ-exalting ministry, a spiritually powerful ministry, a subversive ministry, a multicultural ministry. Lord, that your... Uh, your name would be lifted up above all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.